0: We're in chapter thirteen today, or the end of twelve, and then thirteen today. So, let me ask you a question What was your first thought when your parents said? If your friend jumped off a bridge, would you do the same thing? (laughs) Yeah. Could that be a literal thing? Sure, I mean, it could be. Your friend could actually jump off a bridge, and you could actually be faced with the same dilemma and (laughs) decisions to make. Um, But is it meant to be literal? Yes and no. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, kind of yes and no. Like, is it a serious question? Yes. I mean, if parents ask you that, or if you've asked your kids that, yeah, I mean, you're asking them a serious question. Are you calling them for a response? Not like are you expecting them to say yes or no, but you're expecting them to respond, right? You're expecting something about their life to respond from you having said that. And not if they ever actually stand on a bridge with their close friend. Or, I got another one, how about the first time, or how about when your parents use your full name in public? Crowd may not be sure what you're, what's going on, but you are. You know what I mean. The moment that you hear that full name gets said, it means a lot to you. I remember when Alexander got through in to my name? That's a lot of syllables. If it went through David Alexander Wiley, I was in trouble. Um, but that's kind of where we're going today. We're going to talk about parables. We're going to get into them anyway, and Jesus is going to talk about them. And I, I won't go to defining it yet. We'll get to that, but. Kind of be thinking about that, holding that idea in your mind, the idea of literal things, but that teach you something. Go to verse 46 of chapter 12, because that's where we stopped. And I actually did that intentional. I feel this kind of rolls into the next section pretty good. Verse 46, while he's still speaking to the people, and remember, he'd been condemning that generation for their unbelief. I might go back into that. We did two weeks on that. so. But that's what's been going on. So while he's still doing that, it says, Behold, his mother and his brothers... Stood outside asking to speak to him. So they can't even get in the house uh, where he's at at the moment. But he replied to the man who told him. So they they send a man in. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Mom and the brothers can't get in the house. So they send a guy in and say, hey, squeeze up in there and tell Jesus we're out here. And Jesus, and and some people believe, most scholars, I believe, suggest that Joseph is dead at this point in time because he's not listed here clearly. Um, But in any event... Mom and the brothers are there, and he tells them, who's my mother and my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, not the crowd, not the crowd, his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, excuse me, my brother and my sister and my mother. I've heard a lot of people argue Catholicism with this. I'm not getting into any of that noise. Um, but... In fact, in Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3, he names off four of the brothers of Jesus between the two of them, and that he had sisters. It's pretty wild, right? I mean, he is the Son of God, yes. He is virgin-born, yes. But he had, we would call half, uh, brothers and sisters. Imagine, I'm not trying to be funny, but that's kind of the point here. <laughs> Imagine Jesus is your brother. You know what I mean? I mean... I've been to Nazareth, and and we talk about this sometimes in here. But I'll never forget sitting on those hills and trying to put my brain around the fact that God ran around and played as a boy. Like my, I feel funny saying that, but that's that's what happened. He had friends, he had brothers, he had sisters, and what Jesus is doing here sounds cold as nails. You know what I mean, Mom and Brother. I mean. God sounds cold, but what he's doing, he's practicing what he preaches. So remember that when you read things like in Luke 14, you don't have to turn to it. In verse 25, when great crowds are following him, he turns to them and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. He's practicing what he preached here. Hate doesn't mean I want you to die. Hate is the idea that in light of his behavior towards the Lord, it would appear that he hated his own family. We've talked about that a bunch of times. But he's practicing what he preaches. Luke nine fifty nine. you don't have to go there either, but he tells one person to follow him. And the person says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, that's some heavy stuff. But back here in chapter 12 of Matthew, he's more or less practicing what he preached. And Mark, you don't have to turn to this either. I'm going quick through this. But Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us why they came. In Mark's account, he says, And when his family heard all that was going on, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So they're there because they think he's crazy. And to be fair, consider it from their eyes. They grew up with him. Listen, let me not be disrespectful, but let me speak the truth. She changed his diapers. I mean, that alone is enough to wreck your head all day long. You know what I'm saying? She changed his diapers. She saw him grow up. She, she cleaned up his vomit if he did it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the, the, the boys, they grew up with him are the ones that are always getting in trouble. And he's never getting in trouble. You know, you hear all those jokes, but it's really the truth, you know? I mean, think about it. I, I cannot imagine what it was like to grow up a brother of Jesus. And he's the firstborn. So he's technically the head of the household in a lot of ways now, especially if Joseph is dead. And it doesn't tell us that, but if we assume that. So imagine this, from their eyes. And now things are, this dude, hey, it's one thing when Jesus is out becoming a preacher and he's climbing the preaching ladder and he's preaching bigger, bigger churches. But it's another thing when he's got this sudden following and our own religious leaders are condemning him and he's condemning them back. He's like not taking a neat They're telling him, hey, man, you're you're sinning. Your behavior is sinful. And instead, he's condemning them and continuing to hang out with the drunks and the all that stuff. So they think, okay, he, he's gone too far. In fact, the leaders have told the whole congregation of Israel he's possessed by a demon. So perhaps in their mind, they're thinking this is a rescue mission. we got to save this guy from himself. You know, he's losing it. And then he totally... Disses them. Imagine their walk home. <laughs> Whew, I bet their brothers were stewing. You know what I mean? Not only did he diss them, but he dissed their mom. Like in front of the crowd, I bet they were so mad. In fact, um, this is one of the reasons perhaps why Jesus says the phrase that the prophets not were welcome in his hometown. The son is welcome, the person's welcome, but not the prophet. Hey, you, you want to come in here talking about the Lord like you know something? I know where you grew up. I saw you do this. I saw you do that. Don't come in here telling me about who, you know, God is like you know. Look at, uh, hold your hand and flip right back. Look at John chapter 7. This is just later just to see the see the effect of this. Verse 2. John chapter 7, verse 2. This is just another moment where, where you can feel the weight of Of what Jesus dealt with. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. And verse 3 says. So his brothers. Jesus' brothers. Said to him. Leave here and go to Judea. he said that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one who works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly. He said if you do these things. Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So what's he what are they doing? They're they're like doing the same thing the Pharisees are doing in a sense. Hey, show us some miracles. Go show a sign. Hey, if you're the man, just show yourself. If you're God, go on and glow. You know what I'm saying? Or something. They're straight mocking him. You know what I mean? They are absolutely straight up mocking him. Just telling him, hey, go on down to the Jerusalem to the feast of Booth, and everybody there, everybody's camping, and reveal yourself to be the king. Because everybody's in town anyway. Let the whole world say, take your disciples with you. Put them out in front. You know, they're just slam mocking him. It's it's amazing. But it tells you how annoyed his brothers have become at this stage of the game and how bitter they've become. Um, back in Matthew chapter 12, you got to feel their struggle, but also Jesus' struggle because Jesus somehow or another has got... His brothers have to, and his mom, and his mom have to learn to follow him when he's been the one that's learning to follow her. You know what I mean? For all these years. And now comes the time when they've got to learn to follow him. I mean, talk about humility of the brothers to have to figure that out. Mom, the humility of her. The main issue, and the reason I'm bringing this into the second half of this, is because there's a big contrast here between Jesus' response and the Pharisees who constantly argued their heritage. They were from Abraham. They were, their tribes were a huge deal. Especially if they were the priesthood, of course, that was a huge deal. Or their linkage to the high priesthood, which was a huge deal. Lineage was everything. You all know what Paul said about it in Philippians 3, 5. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as of the law I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. It, didn't mean it was perfect. It means nobody was going to find any fault in him. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, what count as lost for for the sake of knowing Christ? I'll never forget that. He didn't just say, "I just counted as lost." He said, "I counted as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. In order that I may know Him, I cut all that off." And Christ is modeling that. He is the Messiah, but He's sitting here saying. This is my family. These guys right here is pretty crazy. Even in a moment when Jesus is cutting off biological Israel because they've rejected him, the family of Israel. Even as he's cutting that off, he's establishing this spiritual family in these disciples that are sitting there. And again, it ain't the whole crowd. It's the disciples. And ultimately his family is going to see it. Mary sees it, and I think Mary knew it. I think she's just struggling with it, what it all means, which obviously we all do that. But I think Mary struggled, but she, we know she saw it by the end. And how crazy is it that when she's on the cross and she's dying, Jesus, I'm sorry, when he's on the cross and he's dying, when Jesus is on the cross and Jesus is dying and Mary is at the cross, who does Jesus give Mary to? John, a disciple. He had brothers. He's the oldest, so his actions there, certainly again if Joseph is dead, his actions there make sense. As the oldest son, he's entrusting his mom, but not to the next son, to a disciple who's sitting there. You know what I mean? That relationship that he would built with them was definitely family. And two of his brothers, we know for a fact, turned to follow him for sure. Because they both write, they both are uh, authors of biblical books. James and Jude are both what do we call half-brothers of Jesus? James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. So, clearly, his family came along and became believers at some time. But what's cool is, that's one thing we can easily transfer onto ourselves. Hebrews 2.11 says he calls us brothers and sisters. That We are in that same boat. We are part of that family as disciples. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And continuing on, that same day... So at the same time, Jesus goes out of the house now, where he'd been packed in there, mom and dad, or mom and brothers have gone. Now he goes out and he goes and he, it says he sat beside the sea. Sitting down was a sign of to teach. Like I go shut this door and step up here like I'm doing, it's time to start. When a rabbi would go and sit down somewhere, it was a sign that he was preparing to teach. So it says great crowds gathered about him. So the people from the house, I'm sure, followed him. And whomever else now, this great rabbi has sat down, and they're, he's ready to teach. They're grabbing around to hear him. So then he got into the boat and sat down. So the disciples let him sit in the boat, push him shortly off the shore so he can be seen better. And he sits down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So how many? Who knows? Who cares? There's a large crowd. He's preaching to them from this boat, seated, because that was the traditional way of doing it. Verse 3. And he told them many things in parables. This is just the first one all right, that we're going to look at today. But he told them many things in parables, okay? So this is the first of many. And it says, it begins with the sower went out to sow. So before we go on, what's a parable? A story? A story? A earthly, story a a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's a good way to look at it. That's actually a pretty good way to look at it. Simple fact. Um. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. If you Google how many parables are there in the, G- in the Bible, how many parables did Jesus say, you get 5,000 responses because it depends on how you define a parable exactly. But there are lots of them, lots and lots of them. We know for a fact that more than a third of his teaching was in parables. The parable, typically you can recognize it by the phrase, to what can it be compared? It can be compared to... Well, that's not always the case, but typically that's kind of, that's a for sure parable if it goes that way. It's like a sermon illustration that I might use, but the difference is that with a parable, it's designed to be heard by some, and at the same time, the whole crowd may not get it. Whereas a sermon illustration, you're trying to simplify it so that anybody can hear it. parable is more of a secret, and I'll explain to you why I say that here as we read into it. Okay. Also, typically parables drive one main point. There might be more than one, but most of the time it's one main point. Unlike, say, an allegory that's going to have all kinds of meaning. Like a C.S. Lewis story, it's going to be an allegory, not a parable. It's going to have fictitious creatures, and it's going to have lots of meaning. Um, a parable is usually to hammer one point across. Uh, one definition says, A parable is a figure of speech which uses something common and familiar from everyday life and experience. And compares it to a moral, ethical, or spiritual truth. A parable is based on reality, unlike allegory, which is entirely figurative. Which is true. So, it's going to use things in reality, not imaginary things. So, they can be as short as Jesus saying, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Some might not, but I can classify that as a parable. Because those are real things, and he's meaning something by saying that. Or it could be as long as like the Good Samaritan... There's not actually a Samaritan person that that's the story is. that, 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 is, an, that is a parable to tell a point. Um, look back at verse four and let's go on. He says, "The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. So imagine Jesus is sitting in the boat and he's beginning this story. So the seeds fell along the path. The path is the, like the edge of the field where people would walk by." So he's in a field sowing. This is not just randomly all over the place. And it says, "And the birds came and devoured them." Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, that just underlined that, because that is the key all of this. He who has ears, let him hear. What's he mean when he says that? We talked about it before. He'll use it quite a bit. Like, can you understand what I'm saying? Or if you hear what I'm saying, respond. That your response may make clear that you do actually hear what I'm saying. You know, am I getting through here? That's, what he, that's kind of what he's saying, in a sense. Now watch this, though. Hold on to the thought. in Verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said, um, Why do you speak to him in parables? And he answered them, To you, key, it has been given. Been given. They're not super smart. They're not super intelligent. They're not book studied. It's been given to them. That's something huge to remember here, okay? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Note the contrast. To you, to them. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from, from the one who has not, not even, or excuse me, even what he has will be taken away. Now, the fact that I'm saying it's in, it's a secret thing is not intended to mean it's mythological, mysterious, like, mystical things, or that you've got to dig deep for some kind of gem in there that's not on the surface. That's not what I'm saying. The fact is, if you're a disciple, the illustration should help you understand. It should. But what he's getting at is, and so, like he said, then more will be given. You'll have more understanding. If you're not a disciple, even what you have may be taken away. You might be more confused than enlightened. You might have come in at thinking you got it figured out, and then he tells, tells his parable, and all of a sudden you have no idea. You're like, "Wait, what?" Now you're really lost. Even what you had might go away. As a disciple, the parables should help. They should simplify something, but they get confusing to us a lot of times because we don't take the time to put them in context. You got to remember that all these things that he's saying in these parables, they were real things. They were real life of the day. For us, sometimes they get confusing because we don't understand that. Context, you know, to sow seed back then probably look a lot different than it does now. But not too much different. But there are some parables that say some really weird things, you know, because we don't do it that way anymore. So keep in mind, the context is important. You need to understand the literal sense before you determine the spiritual sense. Got that? You understand what he's literally talking about before you try to determine what he's spiritually talking about. Look at verse 13. We're going to come back over some of this too. But verse 13, he said, This is why I speak to them in parables. So he tells the disciples, This is for you to know. And then he says, But this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. In their eyes they have closed, closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So, remember, that, remember the context. He's just been rejected by this generation of Israel, officially by the leaders. He has just condemned that generation of Israel. Despite what they've seen, despite what they've heard out of him, they have rejected him. They refused him as Lord. And now they're trusting in idols instead. They're trusting in others. I love this because I think this is Dave now, but I think this might be what Jesus had in mind in a lot of ways when he was thinking of this. You can just note it. You don't have to turn to it. Psalm 115. God is talking about the, the uh, nations, the foreign nations and their idols. And he says this in verse four. There, the nation's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Listen. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they don't make a sound in their throat. Then he says this. This is the key. Verse 8 says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. I think in a lot of ways, what Jesus is saying is, you have ignored me, you have have ignored who I am as your Lord, as God. And instead, you're trusting in the leaders, you're trusting in the law, you're trusting in the temple, you're trusting in all these technical, at this point, idols. And he's saying, you become just like them. Idols don't see, idols don't hear, idols don't talk, and now neither do you. You know, your mouth opens, but you're not really saying anything. Your ears are open, but you're not really hearing anything. You know what I mean? In Luke's account, he notes a familiar phrase you're all familiar with. Again, you don't necessarily need to turn to it. Luke 10, kind of talking about the same time period in Matthew. Luke says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them. To the little children. He's talking about the same moment. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to His disciples, He said, Privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Matthew says... The same thing there in verse 16 of chapter 13. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, Luke said kings, he says righteous people, longed to see what you see and didn't see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is pretty wild. Jesus is saying, thank you Father for hiding these things from the wise and revealing them to the simple. In a lot of ways, that's what he's doing as he begins to move through these parables. Disciples, by obeying Jesus and staking their lives on it, you do realize that, they stake their lives on it by sitting there. By obeying Jesus and staking their lives on it, they've recognized him as Messiah and King, even in front of the audience, in front of the crowd, and in front of the Pharisees. And in so doing, they're already entering this kingdom. Already entering his kingdom because he's king. They're recognizing that. They're submitting to follow him as part of his kingdom. And so, what, what he's saying here is so many have anticipated being part of that kingdom. Like who? Who is somebody that anticipated being part of that kingdom? It's not a trick question. John the Baptist. that'd be fine, yep. Well, Peter saw it. Who didn't see it? All of Israel at the time. Who anticipate? Who? What? Abraham. Abraham, Jacob, Noah, Adam, David. I mean, the whole Old Testament that followed the Lord. That's what he's trying to say. Go read Hebrews 11. Hall of faith right there, right? All of these people. He says they all died in their faith, not receiving the promise, but looking forward to it. That's that's what Jesus is saying. All these kings, all these prophets, all these people desired to see this moment when the king is here. And you guys get to see it. But more importantly, you do see it like you know who I am. You do hear it. You know, you hear who I am. MacArthur said parables required more explanation. And Jesus employed them to obscure the truth from unbelievers while making it clearer to his disciples. For the remainder of his Galilean ministry, he did not speak to the multitudes except in parables. In fact, verse 34 says that in Matthew. We'll get to it. Jesus veiling the truth from unbelievers this way was both an act of judgment and, MacArthur says, an act of mercy. It was judgment because it kept them in the darkness that they loved so much. But it was mercy because they'd already rejected the light, so any exposure to more truth would only increase their condemnation. I don't know about that, but I do recognize the fact that he is hiding truth in parables. Now, I'll be fair. There are some that say that's not the case. In fact, one of the commentaries that I use quite a bit um, says the opposite. says that what Jesus meant about the parables was that the disciples had understanding already, but the people didn't. So he spoke it in parables to simplify it for the people, whereas the disciples already had ability to understand. Now, I, I disagree with that for a few reasons. And I'll give you some. First of all, the context of this moment. Consider how many parables Jesus tells. and As we go through them, you'll see them that are about rejection. Mo- I wouldn't say most. I don't know. I haven't done the math. But I feel like a majority of the parables that he tells are not positive parables. They're rejection-based parables. So, for one thing, consider the weight of the moment, what's going on. He's just been rejected. Another thing, why I think that he's doing this in a, in a lot of ways to hide truth, is because the sudden change in language also shocked the disciples. He'd preached the Sermon on the Mount, no problems. Now, all of a sudden, the disciples were like, hey, what's this? And it came as a shock to them, too. Number three, um, he's only using parables with the crowd From now on, I mentioned that already, but from now on, verse 34 34 tells you he only uses parables with the crowd, but it also says that in private he explains all things to his disciples. Mark 4 literally says that, that he explained all things to his disciples privately. So he's clearly making a distinction between the two there. And another thing, the disciples don't understand already because they ask him for an explanation. They don't they don't already understand. They're like, what does it mean? And that's why he says, Okay, let me explain. Also, another thing, you can just note it, but John sixteen twenty-nine <sighs> seems to suggest that later later the disciples are thankful that he finally just speaks plainly. Like the parables have been a bit stressful at times. <laughs> and they're thankful that he's finally just talking to them outright. Um And then a last thing for me is Jesus says that what the crowds already have may be taken away. All right. So there's a lot of reasons to believe that. There's a book called They Also Taught in Parables. A few authors involved in it. But one of the things they note in there is while the rabbinic parables seek to reinforce conventional values, those of Jesus tend to undermine or invert them. The parables of the rabbis seek to resolve uh, perplexities, but those of Jesus create them. The parables of the rabbis intend to make life and thought smoother, but those of Jesus make them harder. You know, Jesus refers to this new thing, like with this idea of mysteries or secrets from the foundation of the world. He'll mention that in just a second. Paul uses the term mystery a whole lot of times in the Bible. A whole lot of times. And he defines it as something that was hidden in Hebrew scriptures that is revealed or made known at the time of Jesus and the apostles through the Holy Spirit or through Jesus directly. Not to say it was never there. It might not have been, but for the most part, it, it, was, it may have been there, but it was not understood in the Scriptures. And then in the New Testament times, it has become revealed or made known. Paul talks about that quite a bit. And Paul says of that, that there's a difference. That for the saints it's a blessing. For the crowds it's what? Do you know? Foolishness. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. And he says for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning. So even Paul would say. There's a clear difference. That we have understanding of something that people aren't just ignorant of. They think it's stupid. Know what I mean? And so, I really feel like Jesus uses these parables for three main reasons. This is my thing. I think he uses them for three main reasons from the text. He uses them for the disciples to understand the truth through illustration. And we're disciples too, if you're a believer in Christ in this room. So when I say disciples, I'm not just talking about the twelve. I'm talking about these recorded parables should help believers to understand through illustration number two he d- he uses these parables to hide it from the masses not that the masses can't understand it but just if you're a part of the mass and you understand it then guess what you might have ears to hear watch out you might be a disciple real quick you know what i mean that, that's not to say it shouldn't be preached to the masses or hate it for them but it's an idea of the fact that if you hear it and you understand and you're in the masses, then that means you might he might be doing something in you. Okay? And then a third reason is, and this is flat in the text, is to fulfill scripture. He quoted Isaiah six, nine through ten there. I already read that. And that comes from when Isaiah is being called to pronounce judgment on Israel. That's the, that's the reference that he's going to. And their rejection has been foretold in Scripture. It was told that it would happen. And so what he's doing now is he's using parables as a way to provide evidence that Scripture is being fulfilled right now. I'll give you another verse. You can just note it. Later in the same chapter of Matthew, in verse 34, I already mentioned it. He said, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. To the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them, to the crowd, without a parable. Nothing. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He's talking about Psalm 78 two here. I will open my mouth in parables. I'll utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's verse 2 of Psalm 78. Listen to what verse 1 of Psalm 78 says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. That's what God is saying. So Jesus is saying... Hear what I say, my people. I will speak in parables if you understand. My people, if you're my people, hear me. And look what Matthew 13, verse 18. Hear then, my people, disciples, brothers and sisters. Hear then, the parable of the sower. So, before I jump into it, we'll go through it real quick. Before I jump into it. Some say these are all believers that because they've all received the seed from the sower. Some say this is a varying number that um, there's one lost and three who believe. There's two lost and two who believe. There's three lost and one who believe. Um, the majority is in one camp and I'm, I'm in that camp as well. But just to be fair, there's a bit of debate so I'll put it out there as we go. Keep in mind too, ears us to hear doesn't mean that it's crystal clear. A parable's supposed to help you understand a principle, but at the same time it's a teaching. So what does a teaching imply you got to do? Learn. Yeah, it's not just conveyance of knowledge. Here's the facts, write it down, go, you know, go and do. A parable is to make you think, to engage your mind, to make you process and to internalize it because you remember the story, I'm real good with that. I, I love story. I can me personally, the way I'm wired, I can hold theology even a lot better if I got it in story. That's why I love the Old Testament, because most of the theology that comes through the Old Testament is story, whereas Paul is just hears the facts in a lot of ways. So, in this case, a parable is not just straight answers. It's something that conveys facts, but it's supposed to make you want to learn and process. If you have ears to hear, what that means, listen, is that you understand the principle in this, will enlighten your understanding of the kingdom of God. That's really what ears to hear. It doesn't mean you, you can define and answer it really quick. It just means that you understand that whatever he is conveying through this parable is going to enlighten your understanding of him and the kingdom of God, him as king. So, remember the context one more time. Remember the context of the people, the nation, rejecting the kingdom offer. He has come as king. They've rejected him. Verse 19, here's the parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, that's a key note right there. So this first person does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. Little note there. The root grows from the inside out. It's in him. This, for me, I believe, must come from God. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, key phrase there, not just random tribulation and persecution, persecution on account of the word that he is claiming to follow, immediately, immediately, not over time, not gradually, not the struggle, the second that the word in him gets questioned, immediately he falls away. Verse twenty-two. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, this is one that people some say is saved and unsaved. We'll we'll talk about it here in a moment. But this one is proving unfruitful. A tree is known by what? Its fruit. So either this person is not saved or there's no reason to believe he is. Or she. One of the two. Point being, there's no fruit to evidence anything here. We'll come back to these. We're gonna go, I'm reading through them, but we're going to talk about them. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Contrary to verse 19, who does not understand it. This one understands it. The word "understandment" there is the idea of coming to agreement together on something. To perceive or to follow, to accept, is the response involved there. Like, it's not just, okay, yeah, I get the math here. It's like, yeah, this not only makes sense to me, but I'm on board. Let's do this. I'm, behind, I'm following you here. And it says, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, there's always so much focus on the seed here. But what about the sower? And the real question on the table is, what's the soil? That's the big deal right there. So, it's not always a good idea to look at all of the characters and all of the things in a parable and try to identify them because they're trying to just make a single point here, typically. But in this case, it might be helpful. So, let's look through them. Who's the sower? Jesus. That would be Jesus, okay? That's all right. Don't, it's okay. That's why we're doing this. Don't, don't feel bad if you, if you, you know, that's why we're doing it. Jesus is a sower. What's the seed? The word, the word. yeah. In fact, Mark 4:14 4, telling the same thing. He says, the sower sows the word. So the word is... Is it your Bible? Sure. But in this context, what he's talking about is the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the proclamation the kingdom is here, his word, who he is. So he's the sower, Jesus. He's sowing the seed, which is the word. He's preaching the word of the kingdom. So what's the soil? The hearts. Yeah, Yeah, yes, the hearts of the ones who hear it. In this case, the field being the Israel. And the hearers, those who are hearing it, it's their heart. So he's saying there's different hearts. The same word goes out to all, but there's different hearts. All right? And he says that the path, the ones that fall by the path, be a hard heart. You know what I'm saying? Lack of a better phrase. It says the birds come and get it. Who are the birds? It's funny. In, uh I think Mark, or no, he says it here. He tells you who the bird is. The evil one. Yeah. So, spiritual forces. I know the birds is plural. Evil one is singular in our language, but you get the picture of what he's saying. Satan comes and takes it away. Takes the word away from you. The rocky ground. That's again, a hard heart. Pretty clearly. The sun scorches it. Scorches the word. That's pretty obvious, too, because the way he explains it's easy. Persecution and trials come because of the faith in the word. Not not because that life is hard, but the word that I'm trusting in is not working. And in fact, instead, I'm getting abused for it. Life's getting harder, not easier. So, the heck with this whole Jesus thing. And I know a lot of people like that, to be quite honest with you, um, that say they're all down and they're praying for some big event to happen and then when the big event doesn't happen the way they want it to happen or it's over suddenly we're done talking about all this you know what I mean done talking about it same kind of idea because they don't have any root now I realize a lot of people see the root as growing down into the soil and I think there's truth in that but I think here root is something different I think the root is something that comes from God because it's inside and it grows and it the root feeds the growth of the plant Um, now there's truth in this of you need to dig deep into the word don't just use the word like a magic wand and when it works or doesn't work you're done with it you need to dig into it y'all know how i feel about that and i think there's some truth there but i also think that this is something root is something that comes from god that feeds the plant i'll tell you why here in a second thorns you had a path you had a hard ground now you have thorns though that's not the ground what is that so you might be in great soil on that one but what are the thorns yeah worldliness It's not the ground itself, it's the environment of the ground. So you might be in great soil, but you're surrounding yourself with rotten people. You know, or you're surrounded by rotten people. And then he says two other things. He says the fruit and the yield. The fruit exposes what kind of plant it is. It proves useful to the one who planted it. And what does all fruit have? Seeds. Seeds. So it not only is useful to the one who planted it, but it bears more seed for the sower to sow more fields. It's reproducible. So the, the last one there is a yield. He said it, the result of the fruit is you can pick it, you can seed it, and you can plant new fields, you know, and that all comes from that plant. In this parable, I believe without a doubt one out of four people here who may call themselves disciple or believer, actually produce the fruit to prove it. Uh, I think we're talking about three lost and one who's a follower. Uh, A believer, listen, follows. But following is different than saying, yeah, this could be the guy. Yeah, I think this could be the guy. I think this could be the guy. I'm believing enough that I'm coming over here every week to find out if he's the guy. Or saying, I have left everything because I know he's the guy. You can define, believe, two different ways if you think about it like that. One of them is waiting to see what happens. And one of them is saying, I already know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? I already, I know what's going to happen. I think number three, the questionable person in here, I think he's lost. Or she. Had a mountaintop experience. You know, heard the word, had a mountaintop experience, and they're on fire, but now they're back to Reality. And, uh, you know, he adds the word to the list of things that he or she's going to get to one day. I'll get back to that. That was pretty awesome that week we had. Toss it on the shelf and get there. Number four is the key. I don't care what you think of the other three. Number four is the goal. Number four is the one who hears, listen, understands, internalizes it with a repentant heart. That's good soil. That's good soil. You can't change your own heart, but you can make the soil rich. You know what I mean? By having a repentant heart, listening for Him, hearing from Him. And then He prepares your heart. He prepares your ground. I think that is where the root comes from. And you obey. You follow. You follow. You listen. You hear. You obey. You follow. And it produces fruit. Even... When the struggle comes to abandon what you've heard, it's still going to produce fruit because it's what he's doing. Four people heard this, but only one. Obey. A better way to hear that he who has ears let him hear is to say, He who has ears obeys. He who has ears to hear obeys. And we hate the word obey, but you know what I'm saying. Say follow. You don't like obey? He who has ears to hear follows. Okay? Last little thing here. Notice he doesn't explain the fruit and the yield any differently than he said it in the parable. He just more or less repeats what he said in the the parable. I believe that's because they're the work of God. Those things come in response to the good growth of the seed in the rich soil fed by the root. Whether you see the root being his word feeding you or you see his Holy Spirit or himself feeding you, however you see it, that combination in rich soil, which I believe, again, a repentant heart, a submissive heart, an obedient heart, those things work together and they produce fruit. God does it, not, not us. Those things are the work of God. And notice the yield is decreasing. Did you see that? We would never say it that way especially if you're trying to sell something to somebody. If you're trying to sell a plan to somebody, it's always got to be an increasing plan. It's always got to be bigger, better, higher, faster. In this case, both times he says the parable and when he repeats the uh, translation of it, I guess, interpretation of it, both times it's a decreasing number. And I I didn't see a lot of people address that, but I'll tell you what I think. I think because the emphasis is not on the amounts. Because it comes from God anyway. It's not about numbers. I did see MacArthur said not all believers are equally fruitful, but all are fruitful. You know, and I think that's the idea that t- to God, the amounts are not important as much as that you produce fruit, because He's the one that does it anyway. He's the one that causes all this to happen anyway. So, what about us now? What do we do with all of this? Most of you probably know or have heard Romans ten seventeen. anybody know that one? You do if I start saying it so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God right word it literally says the word of Christ which is pretty awesome Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of the same Messiah who is telling them these parables right now and he says a few verses before that in Romans 10:15 he says as it is written how beautiful are what Feet of those who what? Preach the good news. Gospel. Yep, same thing. Or you could say, who sows seed. You're doing the same thing that Jesus is saying he did. As sower, he sowed the seed. The seed was the word of God. Paul now is telling you in Romans how beautiful are the feet of the sower. You guys. And me. When you sow the word, you preach the word. Why? Because faith comes from that. That's what he says. When you sow the word, faith comes from that. Look, these are easy things. You don't have to judge the ground. You don't have to decide. My own rocks and my own... T- you know, even Jesus' own parable, he just he scattered it. You don't have to judge the ground. You don't have to figure that out. All you've got to do personally is remain in rich soil. Stay repentant. Keep the word in your heart so it's growing. And when you look to sow seed, you don't have to judge the ground. You just sow. If you've been in the mission field, this is a common principle you understand. You know, one sows, one waters, one reaps. I mean, it's the idea of generations before you see a harvest because God's the one who does this. You don't have to judge the ground. Another awesome thing here is you don't have to make fruit or yield happen. You can, first of all, you can't. If you think you can, then you're manufacturing something and you're going to find out one day you're in trouble because you're going to be actually dealing with one of these other three characters. If you want number four, that's a God thing. All you do is you sow seed. And then another one is, you just got to go preach. That's it. You just got to walk into the field and scatter the seed. That is so difficult for us for some reason, and it's such an easy principle. It's such an easy principle to understand. It just gets tough for us. I think for me, I get too caught up on, is this the rich soil or is this the path? (laughs) I don't want to waste my time, you know, if I'm over here by the path. I sure don't want to be scorched by the sun. So I don't want to deal, if I'm dealing with these people who are doomed to be scorched by the sun, I don't want to deal with that, you know. Just tell me where the rich soil is so I can get this thing done right and it grow good and whatever else. But that's not the case. You You just sow the seed, man. And the beauty of all of this is, listen, the beauty of this parable to me is not about the actions of should you sow, shouldn't you sow, which, which person is which. The beauty of this parable, the point of this parable to me is that I'm here because he came and sowed seed and I heard him. Not number one. I'm not number two. I'm not number three. I'm number four in that list. And thank God I'm number four. He did something in my life and I can hear him. I'm not one of the crowd that doesn't understand what he's saying. I'm not somebody that he's veiling truth from. Like, I hear him. That's an awesome gift. I know the kingdom is at hand. I'm part of that kingdom. I'm a brother. Which is just mind-blowing to even say. But I am a brother of the Messiah, man. That's awesome. Alright, I'm going to pray. Lord, I do thank you for what you say to us. Um, not just that we have a book, but that you spoke to us. And um, sometimes these things blow my mind, even though I've studied this and familiar with this story in a lot of ways since I was a kid, but haven't studied it here recently and, and even now just thinking about it in general, just wild things come to my mind, Lord, that I, I, I can't comprehend what it must have been like to be James or Jude or one of your physical brothers and that just sounds so funny to even say it. Um, Lord, but the fact that you would look on love at them, but away from them and call me brother and call all of us in this room brothers and sisters that belong to you. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would entrust us with truth that that the crowds don't get. Lord, I, I'm grateful for that. I feel like a lot of people might find that insulting that you're hiding something. But, Lord, you're not hiding it. You're revealing it to those who have ears to hear it. Thank you for trusting us with it, Lord. I pray that we're faithful with your word, that we're faithful with the gospel. Lord, that, that, that we go speak plainly and clearly because that's what you charged us to do. Let us use parables and use stories and use whatever tool we have, illustration, anything, to try to get people to hear and to understand. That's what you charged us to do. And Lord, let us know that when somebody responds, it's not because we were compelling or because we told something well or because of a great story or an illustration, but because your word has worked in their heart. Your spirit, the root, has fed their soul, God, and they they have ears to hear. And we can celebrate what you did, not what we did. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.